0: Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at riskwise.com. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the show with Ahmed and Saeed. Saeed, how you doing?
1: All right, man. Assalamu alaikum. Great to be here. Glad to be back and glad that everybody's joining us once again. Alhamdulillah. So today we're
0: talking about the seven rules to master your money.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, we would love to take credit for these rules. We'd love to say that they're ours and we made them up. But the truth is that we're basically stealing them from a classic work in personal finance called The Richest Man in Babylon. Mm -hmm. This is a book that was written back in 1926. So that's what, 90, 90 years ago.
1: 90 years, man.
0: And it's still read. It's still referenced. We're talking about it. We're going to go into it today. Uh, and it's just one of those classic works that just doesn't die. It's always relevant. It's always true. And we're going we're gonna to run you through seven of the rules that the author lays out in that book. And say and- it's going to take us through the story.
1: Yeah, so it's a collection of short stories that were, you know, compiled into a book. And if you buy the book, which I recommend, it's very cheap on Kindle um, and you read it, don't be surprised that it's a little disjointed because there are a few different stories that kind of get compiled together. And uh, the beginning story is kind of laying the framework or the the narrative. And it's a a, a fictitious story. It's not real, uh, about a real rich person in Babylon, but it teaches a lot of very important lessons. And the story revolves around the main character, Arkad, who is the richest man in Babylon. But when he starts out, he is just a regular wage-earning worker. He uh, is a scribe that carves uh, people's words on clay tablets. And that's what he does for a living. He doesn't come from a rich family. His father's a humble merchant. No big inheritance expected from him. He's not very wealthy. Uh, and Arkad is simply you know, doing the grind, going to work, earning money, has expenses, doesn't feel like he's getting ahead until he meets a a very rich person who is a moneylender in the regions around Babylon named Algamish. And Algamish hires him to uh, write down some things on the clay tablets for, you know, just for uh, a wage. And Arkad says, okay, I'll do this for you. It's going to be a lot of work for me to meet your deadline, Um, but I'll do it. And I'll work through the night. But in addition to my fee, what I want you to teach me is how you became so wealthy and how I can do so as well." So Algamesh agrees and the next day um, they get back together and uh, the clay tablets are finished. And Algamesh says, okay, I'm going to tell you how I built my wealth and how you can as well. But it's so simple, you're going to think that I'm cheating you and that I'm, I'm backing away from the ordeal, but I'm not. This is really how you do it. And Algamesh says, I found the road to wealth when I decided that a part of all I earned was mine to keep, and so will you. So Arkad replies, he says, okay, that seems really too simple. What do you mean a part of what I earn is mine to keep? Everything I earn is mine. You know, I, I do this work and you pay me that all, all that money is mine. And Algamish says, no. What Whatever it is that you earn, most of it is going to go to other things. It's going to go to your rent, it's going to go to your food, it's going to go to your clothes, it's going to go to all this other stuff. And for most people, everything they earn goes to other places and for other things and it's they don't keep any of it. So the rule you need to live by is that for every 10 coins you earn, one of them you do not spend; you keep for yourself, and you find a good way to invest it and let that money grow. That's the rule that you have to live by. So Arkad says, "Okay, all right, I got it. Uh, I think I can do that." So a year goes by. Elamish, you know, goes and does his his work, his investing work, comes back to visit Arkad to see how he's doing, and Arkad he asks Arkad, "How how is it all going?" And Arkad says. It's been great, Uh, I've done exactly what you said. I've kept one coin out of every 10 for me and I've invested it with a friend of mine who is a bricklayer and he went to a nearby city to go buy some gemstones that he knows there uh, that are a very good price and he'll be able to bring them back to Babylon and sell them here and we'll make a good profit and Alchemish laughed and said, "Uh, I guarantee you, you lost your money. You cannot trust a brickmaker or a bricklayer in the business of gemstones. I'm sure that, you know, he's been swindled, and sure enough, he was right. So another year goes by, and Algamish comes back and asks Arkad how he's doing, and Arkad says, uh, I'm doing a lot better. Um, what I've done is, I've done exactly what you said. First of all, you were right. The gemstones were worthless. They were pieces of glass, so I lost all my money there. I learned from that, and what I do now is the money that I've earned and saved, the one in ten, I've invested it with a shield maker for him to buy bronze, so that he can make shields and every three months he gives me a share of the profits. So the money that I've made is making, the money that I've saved, I invested it, it's making me money." And Algamish says, this is great, fantastic news, you're doing this right. Uh, now with the profits that you're making from this shield maker deal, what are you doing with that? And Arkad says, oh well, man, I mean uh, I've bought some nice shirts uh, that I haven't been able to buy in a long time. I've finally been able to buy some spice cakes and enjoy a little bit of the finer things in life that I've never been able to. So, thank you very much for allowing me to do that. And Algamish laughs and he says, you have just eaten the children of your slaves. So, Think of your money as slaves, and I know slaves—that concept is a little uh, obviously very uh, out of vogue and not very popular to think of. So the way I like to think about it is: okay, your your investments are not your slaves, but they're your robots. Your investments are your robots that are working for you, and in addition to working for you and generating you profit, they're able to three D print copies of themselves. That's your profit. Forget money. Let's talk about robots now. This is yeah. <laughs> and three D printing. It's very vogue. Um, so. What you can do is you can take these new robots that have been created for you, these these new copies, these profits, and you can just trade it away and spend it away and put it away, or you can put them to work. So Alchemish says, you've just sold away and eaten the children of your investments rather than putting them to work. And that's the idea of compounding that we discussed in our last podcast. So Arquette says, okay, I think I know what you're saying. I'll do better next time. So now two years goes by. Algamish returns after two years. He's looking a lot older. He's getting older. And he asks how he's doing. He asks, are you still trusting brickmakers? Jokingly. And Arkad says, yes, actually I am, but only in the business of bricklaying and brickmaking and house building. I have businesses with them. I have businesses with gem traders. I have business with shieldmakers. I have business in many different areas. And Algamish says, that's fantastic. You have learned what it is like or what it requires to become wealthy to take one coin out of every 10 that you earn, keep it for yourself, and invest it. So then years goes by, and the next short story starts, and uh, the king of Babylon comes back. This is many years later. king of Babylon comes back from conquest, and he finds that the economy of Babylon is not very fantastic, and that he asks his advisors what's going on. The shops are closed, there aren't any markets or farmers. What happened? what's going on? And the advisor said that it seems like all the wealth of Babylon has really trickled into the hands of a very few people. So there's a big income and wealth disparity in Babylon. And think about that, I man. We talk about this as a social issue, income disparity, wealth disparity, CEO pay. You know, it's a big thing that we talk about now, but this book was written in 1926 and people talked about it back then. Right? Wealth disparity. How can poorer people become wealthy? So in the story, the the king says, okay, we need to go talk to the richest man in Babylon and find out how he did it and whether he's willing to help anybody else. And, of course, they go meet Arkad and Arkad says, I am so happy to teach everybody the seven rules to cure a lean purse or you know, how to cure yourself from brokeitis.
0: Yeah, so we're going to go through those rules now one by one. And just like we reframed the title, uh, we're gonna reframe every one of the rules. And if you read the book, you'll see why we did that. Yeah, exactly. So, so rule number one is pay yourself first.
1: Yeah, and this is the main tenet of what Algamish taught Arkad. The main thing he taught him was first and foremost, for every 10 coins you earn. So 10% of everything you make should be yours to keep. And this concept rings true today. Too often, people wonder why it is that they just can't seem to save money, that at the end of the month, they don't have enough left to invest. And simply, it's priorities. It's big rocks versus little rocks and sand. If you don't put those big rocks first, if you don't make putting 10% away a priority in your budget every month or every every two weeks, whenever it is you get paid, it is simply not going to happen. And most people don't make it a priority. Savings rates across the world are incredibly dismal at 2 3 4%, not near the 10% is where which is the minimum that it should be.
0: Yeah, t- uh, 10% is an absolute minimum, right? I mean and back then, you know, that might have been a good savings rate considering the rates that you need to to earn on your investments today and the time horizon that you have for most people, 10% savings rate is really just the floor.
1: That's the floor. Good word. It's the floor of where it should be. So that is the minimum, including anything else that you're doing through work, any work savings, you know, add up how much that is, add up how much percent of your gross income. If it's less than 10, then you need to up that. If it's at 10, great. You've met the first bar for investments and building wealth.
0: I think this really ties back to our discussion on discipline, Saeed. The, the, the thing with waiting until the end of the month or after you spent all your money to invest is, then you have to discipline yourself to not spend that last 10% or 15% and invest it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you pay yourself first, you're not relying on discipline. You're just you're taking that right off the top. So it's not there anymore and you can't spend it. Exactly. Rule number two is to spend less than
1: you earn. Now, this sounds... Easy, but it really is difficult to sustain in practice. To spend less than you earn is accomplished in a couple different ways. And Ahmed and I have this debate uh, all the time when we think about how we're gonna, you know, talk about our budgeting um, podcast and course that we want to build put out. There's two major schools of thought when it comes to budgeting. There is the every dollar needs to be assigned a task, so you need to budget every dollar that you earn. Uh, the second school of thought, which is kind of where I fall into, is Look, at the end of the day, the whole purpose of budgeting is so that you can spend less and invest more. And in my experience, and I'm sure you all experience this too, if you've ever changed jobs and got a raise or got a raise at your work and you thought, okay, yeah, it's an extra 100, 200, 300 bucks a month, you think that's fantastic, but two months goes by and you have no idea where that extra money is going. It's just being spent. People's budgets grow like goldfish. They go to the size of whatever it is, their capacity or whatever their environment is. So what I tell people is what matters is that you're putting the money away first. So, you know, if you are having if you find that it's difficult to, you know, save money at the end of the month and invest, well then don't do it that way. Every day that you get paid, whether it's once a month or twice a month or however it is, set it up automatically to run through your bank that 10% goes away and gets invested automatically. That you don't even get to see that money, it comes either off your paycheck because it's a work program and your HR department takes care of it, or it comes out of your bank account the day that you get paid to make sure that everything that you need to invest in is taken care of. You'll automatically by doing that spend less money because you look at your account after all that and say, "All right. Well, I don't have 3,000 to spend. I have, you know, 2,700 to spend." And trust me, you won't notice the difference.
0: I really like the 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 mantra of giving every dollar a job, mm-hmm. and the reason is because I think while what you're saying is true, site I think that there's more that could be there's more that you could get out of your budget if you do it this way, and and just think about it, right? If you give every dollar a job, i.e., you assign uh you know a destination to every dollar, right? This is for rent. This is for uh car. This is for food. This is for gas. You give every dollar a job, and then when you're about to make a purchase that you didn't plan, right, whereas otherwise you'd look at your bank balance and you'd say, oh, I've got $3,000 in the bank. I can afford this, you know, $200 microphone, or whatever, right? right? <laughs> That's because I'm, I'm staring at a microphone. So, and it's a two hundred dollar microphone. <laughs> but if you give every dollar a job, then it's like, oh, I, I don't have three thousand dollars because a thousand is for this, and five hundred is for that, and six hundred is for this, and five hundred is for that. So, so I actually don't have that much money in the bank. I can't afford this microphone.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's
0: a great way to rein in your spending because every dollar has a job, and you can't afford to spend it on on other things.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. There's many different ways of doing this. And at the end of the day, we've got to find the way that works well for you. And we, we, we need to control our expenses in order to ensure that we are doing that minimum 10% savings rate. So, And we're going to discuss this in, in greater detail in the future, inshallah.
0: Rule number three is to always be invested. Mm-hmm. And we talked about inflation in, in the last episode, right? Exactly. The, idea, the idea that if you're sitting on cash, your money is not only not growing because it's not invested, but you're actually losing money because inflation is designed
1: to decrease your wealth. Mm -hmm. It's designed to punish people who are holding on to cash. And if you're holding on to cash, that means you're not investing it, you're not spending it. It's not a benefit to the economy. It's just out of the economy sitting under your mattress. And it's not good for the public. So we're going to punish you for holding on to that cash. So be invested. Uh, And You know, Ahmed came up with a great analogy, which I really like. Oh, I'm getting credit? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. This is such a good, I got to get your credit for this. All right. Nice. He said, and this is, you know, saving money and not investing it is like planting a seed and not watering it. You can't expect anything good to happen. You can't expect it to grow. You can't be mad when you, you know, you don't have a fruit tree in 10 years. You never watered it. I mean, it's dead. Um, being invested is such an important part of the wealth building process. And too often, you know, we hear about it in movies and whatever, you know, wouldn't you like a bank account of this much or this person has that much in their bank account or uh, having money in your bank, having a large amount of money in your bank, sitting there doing nothing is not definition of what this whole story is about or what this podcast is about. It's not just having money in your account. That's going to be the starter, right? Pay off your debt, build an emergency fund. An emergency fund is going to be you know, ten or more thousand dollars sitting in cash in your bank. But once you get past building that emergency fund, everything needs to be invested. We need to have money that's working for you. You need those robots put to work, not sitting idle in a warehouse. That they're putting be, being put to work for you to make you money going forward. It's that also, is it's key. also
0: very antithetical to what we're taught by by the Prophet. Wa that right. there's a lot of there's a lot of hadith that speak against the idea of accumulation of wealth or hoarding wealth. Right. Right. M- money is is an asset that we're meant to put to work right? exactly. Whether that's you know whether that's putting to work in this world in the worldly sense by investing in, in companies and in businesses and in productive assets or putting to work in the next worldly sense which would be like charity and and so and things like that but in, mm-hmm. in either case your money is a tool that you are used to to put to work not just sit around
1: Exactly. And we can talk about that theological motivation, the the motivation that our religion gives us to be invested in a few different ways. That's one of them. But we'll talk about that another time. Rule
0: number four is to protect
1: your wealth from loss. Mm Hmm. Um, You know, in the book, there is different you know ways that you can interpret what they're saying from what the book is saying. But we're going to kind of spin this uh, more for the Muslim understanding. And what I think is relevant to take home from that lesson to guard your wealth from loss, protect your wealth from loss, is to understand the risk that you're taking when you invest. And the reason I say that is because there is a mismatch in everybody's mind, especially with Muslims, about what risk really means and what reward I can expect for the risk that I'm taking. In the in financial world, we call this risk-adjusted return. How much are you being paid to take risk? In other words, we can't expect for, especially not anymore, not now, uh, for an investment to be guaranteed, you know, guaranteed to be protected from any loss And at the same time, provide us with a guaranteed 10% return every single year. That's not something that's plausible in the world anymore. If you want such a high level of return, 10% per year, you are going to have to take risk. But let's understand what that risk is. right? If you're investing in the broad market, the broad stock market, through any kind of broad, diversified product, then... There is very minimal, like you don't really have to worry that much about your investment losing everything and going down to zero, right? If you're buying a broad swath of publicly traded businesses, the world would have to crumble and like completely, you know, zombie apocalypse literally to actually happen for all of your money to go down to zero. On the other hand, you know, you could invest in some penny stock or some small business or some small venture and that has enormous levels of risk where you absolutely could lose all of your money. So if you look at something and say, yeah, I, I think I can double my money in six months, that probably also means that you can lose all of your money in six months. The higher the risk, the higher the reward, possible, potential reward, not necessarily, not at all guaranteed. And I think we just need to align ourselves with that understanding that not all reward, not all investments carry the same reward and not all investments carry the same risk. And they do have a very strong, positive relationship.
0: So I think the idea of diversification is, is a strong takeaway here, right? That the best way to, to mitigate your risk of loss is to make sure you're diversified across a number of different investments so that if any one of them, you know, goes down the hole, your portfolio is still in, in reasonably good shape.
1: Exactly. Very good takeaway. Rule number five.
0: And this is, this is controversial.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to get
0: into it a little bit. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you what we called it. Uh, we call this rule "Don't pay too much for housing." Mm-hmm. The author called this rule, or or Arkad, framed this rule as "Make your dwelling a profitable investment." Yeah, but we need to contextualize that. So he basically says, "Own your home so you don't have to pay rent for the rest of your life." Mm-hmm. That's what Arkad said. Yes, we're gonna we're putting a caveat on that, and and the reason for that is that. Things have changed a little bit since 1926,
1: haven't they, Said? Significantly, yeah. You know, uh, back then, it was home ownership rates was, in some countries, as low as 25%. Uh, somewhere in the States, about 45%. So 25 to 45% of the people, of uh, families, owned the home that they lived in. So under 50%. Now it's closer to 70%, you know, above 60 for the States, for most of Europe, uh, even close to 70 or uh, just above 70 in Canada. So the home ownership rates in many countries have doubled. So, you know, almost twice the amount of people own the homes they live in. So the demographics have changed. You know, if everybody back in the 20s read this book, they took that lesson to heart and they bought the home that they live in. And that's not and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the reason we frame it as don't pay too much for housing is because in many countries now, most of the developed world, the idea of home ownership has superseded any financial mathematical logic.
0: Yes, I love it's, it's yeah, the, the, the emotional appeal of owning a home has trumped, you know, rational decision making.
1: Mhm and we can see that with a couple very well one very powerful stati- statistic which was in most of the developed world the cost of a house so how much should you pay for a house it's very difficult to pin down because you know 60 years ago you could have bought a house for 25 grand and now it's going to be 300 400 500 600 grand so you know how do we really compare back then till now and one of the best metrics to do that is to say well, how many years would the average family have to work to buy their house in cash? So how many t- multiples, how many times their earnings, annual earnings, does it cost to buy a house? Is it four years worth of earnings, eight years worth of earnings? Well, we can look back at it and the, the, long hundred ter- the long-term 100-year average is four. That over the last 100 years, on average in the developed world, it's cost four years worth of family's earnings to buy the average house. Now, depending on your country, it's anywhere between six to more than ten times the average family's earnings to buy the average house in any category. So, how is that possible? How is it possible that somebody used to be able to save up, you know, four years' worth of of earnings to buy a house? Now it's ten times. Well, if you look at the data, and Ahmed and I will post this in the show notes, Osad looked at that question, and they found that the largest determinant, the reason why houses are so much more expensive, so house prices have gone much higher than incomes have grown, and the reason why that's happened is simply because interest rates have come down and people are buying more.
0: It's not their money. Yeah. (laughs) They're using the bank's money to buy the house, right? that's, That's how it's possible.
1: They're literally outbidding each other. Using borrowed money, which is detrimental, and if we separate, and if we if we only follow this one rule out of the seven, which a lot of people have done, uh, you'll have this mania in housing in many countries, and some countries are worse than others. Um, and people won't think about the financial ramification of home ownership versus the long term idea of renting, or you know you be tactical and you you rent during periods like. When house prices are high and interest rates are low, and you buy on the other uh, other side, but we do need to make that consideration.
0: Well, let's look at what let's look at why Arkad is saying own your home so you don't have to pay rent for the rest of your life. First of all, he's probably not saying take a massive loan from the bank to buy a house. That's, yes. that's probably not what he's saying, right? Yeah, no. He's probably saying pay it off, like buy your house outright in cash, or you know take a small loan maybe for a few years. But I, I can I guarantee you he's not saying take on a 25-year amortized mortgage. Right to buy your house, mm-hmm. and secondly, you know we would definitely question whether if housing prices were where they are today back then, whether this advice would still be uh w- would still be sound
1: yeah, exactly, would he still given the financial situation that people are in, and we've talked about this and re- and realistically, what people do now is I think what our is
0: saying is o- own your home and then that's it buy it, buy it, and then and then you're done, live there mm-hmm. forever, right. So you don't have a bill to pay for the rest of your life. But what people do now is we we buy the house and then five years later we upgrade and then ten years later we upgrade again and then by the time you retire you've been through three or four houses and and you still got a mortgage you're still paying a bill. Yeah. So yeah. we haven't really accomplished much by buying the house that way, have we?
1: Exactly. So the idea that uh, home ownership is going to save you money only makes sense if you're staying there forever. You buy one house, you stay, you pay it off quick, and you stay there forever. If you keep upgrading every five years, as Ahmed said you're continuing to pay the bank and you're continuing to pay interest. And I think the underlying reason that people love housing is because they love the idea of, I own my home and I feel secure. Like I've asked people, why do you, why are you so gung ho on buying a house? You know, I don't think you're financially ready, but you really want it, why? And the first reason that people will cite is the security. So let me pose to you an idea. If you have, let's say you turn 65 years old, you own your home no mortgage, nothing, and you have no savings or investments, how are you buying groceries next week? Is that really security? Because that is a reality from so many people now. They don't have pensions, they don't have long-term savings, they don't have financial assets, but they have their home, hopefully with a mortgage paid off, but more and more people are retiring with the mortgage too. is it security if you cannot pay, pay for groceries? the following day. On the other hand, you know, what if you were renting at 65, but you had financial assets, liquid assets, paying you dividends well in excess of your rent, well in excess of your bills, well in excess of your groceries and your, your you know, your, your food and everything else that you have to spend on. If your passive income is way more than your expenses, isn't that more secure? I would argue, yeah. And I think
0: in the end, just to close out this point, we're not This is not a a rent versus buy discussion right now. We're not saying you should rent or you should buy either way. What we're saying is it is a numbers game. You've got to run the numbers and you should minimize the amount of money you spend on housing, regardless of how, you know, regardless of whether it's rent or buy. Because housing probably is not one of your, you know, the big rocks that we talked about, the big important life goals. Owning a house probably isn't one of them. If it is, then you should go back to that episode and listen to it again Yeah, it shouldn't be, right? And if it's not one of those big goals, then by definition, you should minimize the amount of money you spend on it so that you can spend more on those big goals.
1: Mm-hmm, the big things that you want to accomplish in life. Okay.
0: Rule number six, automate.
1: Yeah. So we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but this is a, you know, Ahmed and I were thinking about making this episode solely about this topic, about the mechanics of automation. And the reason why is because it is key to success. We talked about before how discipline is not enough to carry you through the long term of making good habits stick. So if you want to change your behavior, you'll be motivated for a little while, but until you control um, and and create new systems – your motivation will wane like it has in the past and you'll stop doing what is good because that motivation is just, it's not enough. It's not gonna, it's not sustainable. It's a quick burning fire. So use that fire to create processes that can carry you through the long run. So with your investing, you know, 10% is the minimum that you should be putting away in your investments and not touching it until you're old and gray. This is the money that is gonna be used to buy businesses, to buy stuff that pays you to own it, so that one day those passive investments that are making you money will be able to pay for all your bills and then some. Right, That's financial security. I don't have to go to work. All my bills are paid automatically. But it's difficult to do that because it takes 20, 30 years to actually accomplish this. So if we have to have that discipline every two weeks, it's not going to happen. So if you have, if you work at a, a larger corporation and they have a savings plan through work, any kind of retirement plan. Make sure you evaluate it to ensure that it's a good quality plan. First and foremost, many of them are. And if they are, then it should be on your to-do list right now. Go speak to HR. I want to increase my contributions such that 10% at minimum is going into those retirement accounts at work. If you don't have that, then do this on your own. You'll need to speak to an investment institution, start up a, your own trading account. Those are, you know, obviously, requires a lot more knowledge and understanding to do, but you want to ensure that 10% is going away into long-term assets automatically, bi-weekly, you sign a form or do an electronic form, you give them the dates, and a set dollar amount comes out, boom, into the market, into the investments, without you having to think about it, and it's just gone and away. If you're, if you're doing things like paying off debt, same deal. Don't wait till the end of the month to see what you have left over to pay off your debt. No, set it up. Automatically right now, log into your bank. This is a to-do on your item. If you have debt that you want to pay off, log into your bank and set up a pre-authorized payment. An automatic payment every two weeks or every month of a set dollar amount to that debt. If at the end of the month you have more and you can you know manually go in and put more, great. But start here. Automate.
0: Rule number seven, and we're almost out of time, so we're going to make this quick, Said. Okay. Rule number seven is make more money. (laughs) Now, think about it. There's there's really three variables at play here when it comes to increasing wealth, right? And we've talked about most of them. One is time, and and I think we talked about that last episode with the idea of compounding, right? Time is really the most important thing you have on your side or not on your side um, because of the rule of compounding. Right. The second is the rate of return, whether you're going to get, you know, 5% in the markets, 10%, 1%, 20%, whatever, that, that'll that make a big difference. Yeah. But thirdly is the amount of money you have to invest, the amount of right. money you can save. And And when it comes to saving, you can rein in your expenses all you want, but eventually you will hit a floor, right? There's only so much money you can save. You have to right. spend, you have to spend, you know, money on your necessary expenses and so on and so forth. So the only way to increase that savings rate beyond that, that, that bottom line is to make more of it.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And this uh, this may or may not be doable for you. Maybe. But I want you to really take a look at this option. Because really to get to that financial security level, as Ahmed said, you do have to invest. And if you're really struggling to control the expenses because you're just not making enough, then you really do need to explore this option. And it's actually not... A bad time in you know the world history for this to be something that you have to think about because there are a lot more ways now to make a little bit of side money uh, than there ever has been before. You know, if you own a home or if you have a place that you have an extra room, you can put it up on Airbnb and rent it out for a few nights a month for a couple hundred bucks a month. I mean, that's not you know an insignificant amount. There's Uber where you can you know, become your own taxi in your, own, in your city and make some money driving people around if that's an option you have a good car. There's not a small number. There's quite a few ways in this new sharing economy that we have uh, that is continuing to grow where people are putting in more effort and choosing to make more money.
0: So, I, I, you know, I really think the takeaway here, Saeed, is like not really the specifics like we can there's lots of ways you can make money and we could spend Well, we could do a whole podcast on that. And there are podcasts on that. And there's but, entire uh, websites on that. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think what's important here is the attitude or the approach. Right. Yes. That you, you kind of you, you view your life and your earning of money like a business, even if you're employed. That's fine. Right. You may be employed and you may you may be uh, earning a salary, But if you view your life, at least the earning money part of your life as a business, then you should always be on the lookout for ways to earn more money, not because you're greedy, not because you want to accumulate wealth, but because you're going to need to do that to achieve your life goals, to achieve the things that are important to you. Right. Right. So a job is just a job. If you can find a better one that makes you more money or you can negotiate your salary or you can, you know, um, you can, you can educate yourself to to increase your skills and and move up the ladder right then you should do those things if you can start a business on the side to make some extra cash you should do that
1: mm-hmm. if you can
0: you know go full-time and start your own business then you should do that i mean these are all things that are options that are available to you and it's just you have to have the mindset of you know what can i do to earn more money for the time that i spend right that's the bottom line right you're going to go into work every day anyways so it you might as well make more out of it than less.
1: Exactly. And that'll increase your ability to put more away, to get to that 10% and beyond that 10% to really build your wealth. And then, you know, you have more room for those big rocks, inshallah. Inshallah.
0: So that's a wrap. Saeed, do you have anything to add?
1: Well, you know, this is a book that's written 90 years ago. And as with a very few caveats, most of it still applies, which tells you, that the principles of building wealth don't really change. The core principles and pillars 90 years ago still apply today. So we don't need to wait for some new fandangled approach, some tax account, some tax break, some rate, some whatever. You know, 90 years of the same thing has what people is what people have been using to build their wealth and their own, their own lives. So there's really no reason to wait for anything new to help us out. We've got the tools, we know what we need to do. We've known it for a while.
0: Yeah, if if you can honestly, you know, internalize and apply these rules, you're good. Yes. Like there's really not a whole lot that say that I can like I mean we're going to talk about a lot more stuff and specifics and get into the stuff in more detail, but but really if you just stopped here and you apply these rules, then you'd be good. That's mm-hmm. obviously easier said than done, and we're gonna help you apply these rules as time goes forward. But, but can, re- this is really the crux of the matter.
1: Yeah, and we're gonna continue with that motivation, continue with those ideas. inshallah, And and you know, this is this is what it's all about, right here. These seven rules. Come back to this often as you can. Pick up the book. Like I said, it's very cheap on Kindle if you have a Kindle, um, and it's very uh, it's a very good it's a, a, bo- a book that I wrote, read back when I was a teenager, and it really stuck with me because. You know, Ahmed and I have talked about these in a very abstract sort of way. In the book, it's told as a story, and it really holds on to you, I think. So I guess I should read it then. (laughs) I thought you
0: did for homework, man. That was the homework last night. No, I bought it. I bought it. But I I mean, well, why should I now?
1: No, because the story is really well told.
0: All right. I'll read it. I'll read it.
1: Relax. And there's more. There's more than just the seven rules. So please, check it out.
0: All right, inshallah, sounds good. Saeed, jazakallah khair, talk to you soon. Yes. Salamu alaikum.